Hello, and welcome to Unerasing LGBTQ History and Identities, a podcast for teachers. I'm Deb Fowler, Executive Director of History Unerased. In this season, my colleague Kathleen Barker will introduce you to a few of the characters featured in our Intersections and Connections curriculum and some fascinating and empowering backstories. We're beginning this season with Polly Murray. And if that name is new to you, you are not alone. But after listening, we are certain you will agree that we cannot tell the story of America without Polly Murray. Take it away, Kathleen. Have you ever heard of Polly Murray? If you teach 20th century American history, in particular the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement, you're probably already familiar with some of Polly's ideas because of their influence on landmark court cases related to race and gender. You may even have learned about some of Polly's collaborators, like Thurgood Marshall, Betty Friedan, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So why is it that most of us never learned about Polly in school? Polly Murray was many things a black, queer, legal and civil rights pioneer, as well as an author, lawyer, poet, priest, and human rights activist. Throughout their lifetime, Polly challenged the word no and fought for human dignity. Because Polly wrestled with identity from an early age, they explored a lot of ideas about gender identity and sexuality in their journals, at one point even wondering if they were one of nature's experiments, a girl who should have been a boy. Polly sometimes identified as male and referred to themselves as a he-she personality. No matter how Polly felt, they understood that the world would always see them as female. We don't know how Polly would have identified today, so we are using they-them pronouns to refer to Polly in this two-part podcast. You will also hear Polly Murray in their own words from an interview recorded for the Southern Oral History Program on February 13, 1976 with Jenna Ray McNeil assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thanks to the University of North Carolina and the Documenting the American South Project for providing access to this interview. Author, lawyer, poet, priest, and human rights activist, Polly was truly a champion of equality. But what motivated Polly Murray to become an activist? Anna Pauline Murray was born in Baltimore, Maryland on November 20, 1910, the fourth child in a family of six children. After their mother's death, Murray was sent to live with their Aunt Pauline and their maternal grandparents, Robert George and Cornelia Smith Fitzgerald, in Durham, North Carolina. Aunt Pauline would become a guiding force in Polly's life. It was Aunt Pauline who enrolled Polly in school and took Polly to church. Pauline referred to Polly as her boy-girl, and allowed Polly to wear pants, except when attending church, and to play with toys typically given to boys. But Polly's entire family was rather remarkable. Polly came from a family of educators and activists, beginning with their maternal grandfather, who was one of the first students of the Ashman Institute, later renamed Lincoln University. He helped to establish schools for freed blacks in Virginia and North Carolina after the Civil War. Polly's father was a principal in the Baltimore Public Schools while their aunt, Pauline Fitzgerald Dame, taught for many years in the city school system of Durham, North Carolina. Polly's family history was the definition of intersectional, a history they explore in their 1950 family autobiography called Proud Shoes, from the birth of their grandmother, Cornelia Smith, who was the daughter of a slave, 
to the story of their grandfather, Robert Fitzgerald, whose free black father married a white woman in 1840. Polly described this family as a mini United Nations with varying shades of skin color. Even within their own family, Polly's skin color occasionally left them at a disadvantage. Color differences operated not only between uh, an individual and, and the local community, but they also operated within, within a family. Uh, I recall, for example, that I told you there were six of us, six little Murrays. And on the one visit that I made back to uh, Baltimore when I was about nine, uh, it was very clear that at least four of us could go downtown to the movies on Saturdays, to the right movie houses. And sit wherever you wanted to. Uh-huh. And two of us couldn't. And I happened to be one of the two. So that says something to you about why I would become a crusader for civil rights. Polly was infuriated by the Jim Crow laws that limited opportunities for black people and restricted their movements in town. Even as a young person, Polly found ways to protest these injustices. By walking or riding a bike instead of riding the segregated streetcars, or by skipping a movie altogether rather than sitting in the segregated theater. In the early 20th century, Durham, North Carolina was known as the capital of the black middle class, although Polly's family wasn't really wealthy. They were not business people, and Polly described the family as respectable poor with middle-class values. Even being nominally middle-class didn't protect Polly and other black people from experiencing the isolation of racism. Segregation was a fact of life in the South, and Polly saw reminders of it everywhere. I suppose this awareness to a child of my generation uh, grows with you just like uh, almost a part of your body and your being. It's, it's hard to say when you become aware because you take it in all of the time. Awareness of segregation, of course, wherever you went in town, you saw the white signs, colored signs, drinking fountains. Obviously, one would be conscious of separate schools and separate churches. Polly and their family, like so many black families in the South, were never completely safe from violence either. After the death of their grandfather in 1919, Polly's grandmother Cornelia became increasingly fearful of the Ku Klux Klan. She began to barricade the doors and windows at night, screaming that the KKK was outside trying to burn down the house. While this destruction never came to pass, Polly's family experienced a great loss when William Murray, Polly's father, was murdered. William had been a patient at the Crownsville State Hospital for the Negro Insane in Maryland. Shortly before he was to be released, William was taunted by a white guard who then beat him to death with a baseball bat. School was another site of inequality for Polly and the black students of Durham. They were forced to attend the West End School housed in a dilapidated old wooden building. I'll never forget West End School. 
It was a rickety old wooden building with peelings. I can I can see those scales now. You know how uh, wood or shingles or paint blisters and I can I can see it. And when the wind in a storm, you could just hear the wind blowing through that old old building. And of course the white kids' school, nice brick school, sitting in a lawn, surrounded by a fence. West End sat up on an old clay, sort of a clay, you know, just just a barren, with no lawn whatsoever. And uh, the fact that I can remember this today, and I, I can see that old school building there, no swings, you know, nothing to play with when you went out. Polly graduated from the West End School in 1921 at the age of 10. The next school they attended was quite an improvement. Polly entered the eighth grade at Hillside High School, which was housed in a brand new brick building. Upgraded facilities did not mean equal access to resources, however. The United States Supreme Court had sanctioned racial discrimination in school funding through the 1899 case of Cumming v. School Board of Richmond County, Georgia. This did not discourage Polly, though, who together with classmates hosted fundraisers in order to purchase basic supplies, as well as the textbooks that the district refused to provide to black students. I was an all-around athlete. I was editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper. I was a member of the debating club. Uh, I was, uh, you know, involved in <laughs> most of the things that kids are involved in. Enjoyed doing these things. But underneath, I hated segregation so that all I wanted to do was to get away from segregation. Despite the inadequate facilities and funding, Polly was an excellent student, graduating first in their class from Hillside at the age of 15. Polly's family members encouraged them to attend a black college. Although Polly was offered a scholarship to Wilverforce, a private, historically black college in Wilberforce, Ohio, Polly was no longer willing to endure the inequalities they observed and experienced in segregated schools and school systems. A few years earlier, Polly had visited New York City with Aunt Pauline and fallen in love with the city. When one of her favorite teachers at Hillside told them about Columbia, Polly knew it was the college for them. Except, as it turns out, it wasn't. All I knew was that Columbia was in New York City. I didn't know that Columbia <laughs> didn't take girls, that girls had to go to Barnard. All I knew that there was a Columbia University and my teacher had been, and that was where I wanted to go. In the summer of 1926, Aunt Pauline took Polly to New York to visit Columbia, where they discovered that Polly would have to attend Barnard College. With help from the registrar there, they learned that Polly would not be able to afford Barnard. Aunt Pauline took me over to Hunter College. And there I discovered that I had to have certain entrance requirements. Three years of one language and two years of another and four years of English. And Hillside High School, Hillside Park High School in Durham at the time was only an 11 grade school. In other words, only three years of senior high. 
And so what it amounted to was that they were referring me to go back to high school and complete the 12th year. And at the same time, if possible, to make up anywhere from one to two years of requirements that I would need for Hunter. Aunt Pauline's cousin Maud agreed to host Polly as they finished high school in order to establish New York City residency and qualify for Hunter. Maud even adopted Polly so that they could become a legal resident of New York City. Upon graduating from high school, Polly had to return to Durham to earn money for college since Aunt Pauline was no longer able to support them financially. After a year of working various jobs as a janitor, typist, stenographer, and reporter, Polly started college at Hunter in 1928. It was around this time that Polly decided that their birth name of Anna Pauline didn't quite suit them, so they chose the name Polly because they felt it sounded more gender neutral. Polly had always had an interest in writing, and they found professors at Hunter who encouraged them to explore life as a writer. They also found classmates who exposed them to the literature and poetry of the Harlem Renaissance. Actually, in college, I decided I didn't want to do anything but write. So I didn't take any of the ed courses, and I avoided all the psych courses. I took none of the courses that would prepare me for teaching but all of the courses that I thought dealt with literature, such as creative writing, short stories, Shakespeare, this kind of thing. One of Polly's greatest challenges was overcoming their own self-doubt. Polly often felt that their experiences growing up in the segregated South left them at a disadvantage. This, I might say, would be the one, one big hurdle that a child coming out of a segregated school system would have to make. That child didn't know whether he or she was equal to his white counterparts, because there'd never been any opportunity for him to find out. And so way back in the, deep, in the back of his mind was always, have I got it? Polly's interest in writing and literature meant that they almost missed out on one of the most important classes they would take at Hunter. A fellow classmate suggested that Polly take a course in anthropology. During this course, Polly would take field trips to the Museum of Natural History and spend time in the Hall of Man, exploring African art and artifacts and the Native American collection. Now I have touched upon the other two streams of my ancestry. Growing up in a kind of a European-dominated uh, society, and my Indian, American Indian ancestry and my African ancestry being more or less suppressed, this experience in anthropology did more for me, I think, than, a, than maybe any other course in, in college because first of all, it showed me a comparative view of man and how man responds to the environment in which he lives to build his, his homes, his art, his institutions and whatnot. And I could see the parallelism between American Indians and Africans. And secondly, in a sense, 
for me, it removed them for, from the column of which I needed to have any sense of being embarrassed about. Polly had many extracurricular adventures during their time at Hunter. In the spring of 1930, Polly and their friend Dorothy set off to explore the United States dressed as Boy Scouts. They were caught when Dorothy tried to use a women's restroom, while dressed as a boy, in Connecticut. In April 1931, Polly hitchhiked across the country to California, but had to make a quick return when they heard that Aunt Pauline was ill. Short on cash, Polly once again donned a Boy Scout uniform and traveled from California to New York by jumping trains. In their scrapbooks, Polly recalled dodging railroad guards and learning from experience which train cars were the warmest. Polly memorialized these experiences in poems, such as The Song of the Highway, and a short story, 3,000 Miles on a Dime in 10 Days. I am on the highway, long, white, winding highway, binding coast to coast and people to people. I am the spine of the earth. Over the hills I glide and then come swooping down to some deserted spot. Over river and lake I stride, through farm and field and town, through desert sands, white hot. I laugh when the brooklets laugh and weep with wayside trees, so bent, so broken by the wind. Sometimes the birds and flowers fill my path with song and bloom. Sometimes a fragrant breeze leaves me drenched with a faint perfume. I hear the sounds of the earth, the low of cattle on the plains, clatter of hoof, sound of horn, rustling fields of rye, of wheat, of tasseled corn, sweet sounds so dear as through the year life marches on. I am old, sad things I know, ache of road-worn travelers, lonely hours, the tragedy of pioneers who trudged through scorching lands, through rain and snow, who bartered with famine, thirst, and death to give me birth. But I go on in silence, for those who know my life will sing my song, Song of the Highway, Long, White, Winding Highway. New York, 1931. Thankfully, Aunt Pauline was not as ill as Polly feared, but Polly decided to put adventure behind them, at least temporarily, and returned to Hunter. After graduating in 1933 as an English major, Polly went to work for the Works Project Administration as a teacher in the New York City Remedial Reading Project. Polly also became an accomplished poet, exploring their place in the world through poems like The Newer Cry. The newer cry was expressing my racial identity. I am troubled by a sense of the violence of revolution, destructiveness, protest you must, but at the same time let your throat ache, ache double with the cry of beauty here and now. A child that was brought up essentially close to nature, and essentially, I think, with great freedom and a sense of love, never really were relinquishing this longing for love in however way you wish to describe it. Love as the great instrument of, of change. 
for me, you can you can see always responding to challenge. You say I can't, I'll show you I can even if I die trying. Over the next few years, Polly continued to explore their identity, trying to understand why at times they felt more comfortable identifying as male. Polly also began to think about attending graduate school at the University of North Carolina. UNC had never admitted a black student and was prevented from doing so by the North Carolina state constitution. Once again, Polly was undeterred. Little did they know that their application would spark a friendship with a first lady and further ignite Polly's interest in fighting Jim Crow a story we will investigate in part two of this podcast. Kathleen Barker is History Unerased Program Director and is a library and information specialist and public historian with 20 years of experience as a museum and library educator. This podcast is funded by the New York City Council. It was developed by History Unerased and produced and edited by Dynamac, Kathleen Barker, Amanda Hurwitz, and me, Deb Fowler. Our Unerasing LGBTQ History and Identities podcast theme music is 1986 by Brother D via Tribe of Noise. I'm Deb Fowler. Thanks for listening. 